change is the only constant in every aspect of our lives, be it how we work, how we live, how we learn. It forces us to make the right decisions without the choice of looking back at history and conventions to know what's right. I am Vikram Baskaran, and this is Chargebee's Champions of Change podcast, where we talk to changemakers who've walked before us, built businesses on first principles, and unearth their tips and tricks to identify change and turn that into opportunity. Remember, you're just one decision away from being a change maker. Driving change through products is kind of hard enough. Driving change through managing products got to be at least a little bit harder. So you can only imagine what it might take to drive change by creating a platform that's actually enabling that next generation of product thinkers. So our guest today is uh, Carlos Gonzalez de Bilam Rosia. In 2014, he founded uh, Product School, which is now the global leader in product management training. With over a million members, which includes mentors from companies like Google, Facebook, Netflix, Airbnb, PayPal, Uber, and Amazon, Product School boasts of an enviable network of individuals and is the largest community of product managers in the world. And of course, like most product managers, Carlos has several talents up his sleeve. Beside building Product School, he's written a book called The Product Book, organizes conferences, The Product Con, and is a self-taught orator who's spoken at more than a thousand events and conferences around the world. So today we're joined by an impressive leader, a teacher, a coach, and a thinker. So welcome to our podcast, Carlos. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited. So before we actually start, could you take a, a couple of steps back and give us a quick background uh, to products? What exactly is it that Product School is about and what do you do there? Sure. Well, I always say that Product School is a solution to my own problem because I started computer science. I started my career as a software engineer, but I soon realized that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life coding. I wanted to leverage my technical background in a different way, and I just didn't know what the options were. Product management wasn't in the cards for me, you know, where I come from in Spain. At least nobody told me anything about this. So I decided to go to business school. I came to the Silicon Valley here to study business, and I saw the exact same problem, but from a different angle. I was learning business, which is very high level. But in that two-year full-time program, there wasn't a single class on product management or digital marketing or data analytics or UX design, a lot of the skills that many of us use on a daily basis. And by the way, I also met incredible people, some engineers that were thinking business like myself. I also met business folks that wanted to get their hands dirty, but they were feeling a little intimidated because they didn't know how to code. So here we are, a lot of different people, and realizing that the potential solution was somewhere in the middle. Product School is a hybrid in between an engineering school and a business school that helps people build digital products, hopefully in a much more efficient way than traditional education. Because first of all, our teachers are not teachers. They are product leaders that are actively working at companies such as Google, Facebook, Netflix, and so on. And also all the trainings happen online on weeknights or weekends. This way, students and instructors don't have to put their life on hold. That's something that I never understood as a student. Why are we supposed to study full-time until our mid-20s? And then after that, work full-time until we die. What if we can have it all and, and invest in ourselves as we grow our careers? That's, that's actually a, a brilliant way of looking at it, right? And I think marrying education, work X, and like a work-life balance, I think that's a masterstroke. 
And I know, like, you know, following on, this is this probably a, a trite question that almost every founder gets asked a lot. But I think it wouldn't be fair to our listeners if we didn't dive into in, into this question. Because you talk to founders and most founders fall into two schools where one, they go through this very definite moment in their life, some experience that creates this, this aha moment of insanity. And then you have this other type of founder where, you know, they start doing something and then it grows into something, it grows into something. And in a very natural way, without even realizing, they suddenly find themselves neck deep in this startup, right? So what was your journey like for product school? Like, how did you get started into, into building a community of over a million professionals? That was more than the latter approach that you suggested. There was no breakthrough situation where suddenly we went from zero to a million. We treat our community and our company as a product, which means that, yes, we had a very clear idea of the problem that we were trying to solve, which is helping people get jobs in product management and build better products. But the actual solution on how to do it evolved over time. So at the very beginning, I was doing everything myself. I bootstrapped the company for the first seven and a half years. So I was the first instructor. I was the first speaker for all of the events that we were organizing. I was answering a lot of questions online on discussion forums, such as Reddit or Quora, just to meet my potential customers and really, really understand who they are and know them by their name. Like in some cases, I literally met with them in person if they were in San Francisco and start little by little. My goal was not to build the largest community in the world. My goal was to meet one student that I could help and then 10, and then from 10, a hundred. And of course, some of the tactics evolve as you get to a larger scale. And some of the initial hypotheses that I had around how to solve this problem also evolved, which I think it's also what's happening in the product world. Like product managers are not these crazy visionaries that have everything figured out, right? And they are telling people, engineers, designers, and marketers what to do. They are in the weeds with them and they are more of facilitators where they're trying to curate best possible ideas, knowing that everything can change. And sometimes you need to operate with limited information and, and, and that's just part of the game. That's so true. I remember this one uh, narrative that a friend of mine told me when uh, we were in one of my previous experiences running a startup where, you know, you have all of these ups and downs. And I think he saw this video off of YouTube, a military uh, general basically providing advice on how you get to do 200 push-ups a day. And the TLDR of his story was you do it, you know, by doing one push-up at a time. It's so stupid simple, but you do one push-up and then two and then three and then five and 10 and 100 and then 150 and then 200. And I think growth, especially when you look at growth in the context of applying product management, it's about, all right, so how do you solve for one customer? Now, how do you make that five? How do you make that 10? How do you make that 100? How do you make that 1,000? Right. And I think your story is a brilliant example of that. And this takes time, right? I wish I had figured this out, right? Overnight. But the reality is that it took me eight years until we raised our first round of funding. And my goal wasn't to raise money. My goal was to help people get jobs. And I was able to do that without funding. It got to a point, especially throughout the pandemic, where our business was exponentially accelerated just because there was more interest in learning online. And the supply, like the demand was so big. And we were ready at that point where 
we knew we were able to, we were going to be able to scale without sacrificing quality. I've seen that uh, mistake in other startups, which is obsession over raising money. And their metric is not so much really like helping your users. It's more about raising money, growing your team. And, and especially there's a lot of pressure, right? In Silicon Valley, there's a lot of stories we hear about super young founders who suddenly had an overnight success and raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they went public. While that might be true in some cases, that's not the only way of growing a business. Yeah, that's really true, right? And that time you take, for some people, it could be months, for some people, it could be years together, but that's time you're investing in setting the foundation right for that next stage of hyper growth. Now, one of, one of the hardest jobs of being a product manager is that it's not one job, unlike most other things where you wake up in the morning and that's just the one thing you do. A product manager, you wear all of these different hats, right? Like. For one moment, you're an engineer. For one moment, you need to start thinking UX from a designer's point of view. And then you need to look at the business angles as, a, as an analyst. And then you need to be looking into the depths of your data. And all of these, you know, you, you're juggling all of these balls. There's timelines, there's things to ship. And then on one side, you cannot push code a second before it's really ready to get pushed. And then you have users. And with all of these things, it, it, it becomes so hard to actually describe the JD, describe the traits of what an ideal product manager looks like. So according to you, from what you've seen, what would you call as, I'm not going to oversimplify it by saying the ideal, because I know you would say it depends. So I'm going to say, if you had to break your top three or four types of product managers, how would you typify them? Yeah, well, first of all, as you were describing the different things that a product manager has to do, I was getting so excited because that's something that really resonates with me. And I recognize that this is also the scariest thing for others. Like, like doesn't mean that everyone has to be a product manager or that everyone is going to love it. So the simple way for me to at least explain this to someone who's never worked in product before is you're going to be a generalist, not a specialist, which means that as you try to collaborate with so many different groups, as you mentioned, engineers, marketers, designers, data, and others, you just don't have the time to go super deep as if you were part of, let's say, the engineering team, right? Where you have maybe less meetings and more time to focus on coding. There's no right or wrong answer, but it's important to understand the expectations of the role. My, my calendar is crazy. <laughs> I live in back-to-back 30-minute meetings. And then I also have to block some time to get some stuff done and to make sure that I'm also planning for those meetings. So with that in mind, obviously the different companies, different products will have different requirements. So let's say your product is very technical. You're working on an artificial intelligence algorithm. Well, by default, you are going to have product managers that have that type of domain expertise. Maybe they, they are knowledgeable in artificial intelligence. They come from a technical background because the product is very technical. However, the majority of the digital products out there shouldn't be that technical. Meaning it's a lot of e-commerce platforms. There's a lot of tools out there that don't really require a very, very strong technical background. If you have that, that's great. That's a, that's a bonus point. But you can become a product manager from many other backgrounds, such as design, business, support, operations, marketing. And that's what we are seeing in our school. When we started, most of our students would come from either an engineering background or an MBA. Now, 
it's all over the place, which I think is beautiful because at the end of the day, if we're building global products, we want to represent a global user base. It's really important to start by having a diverse group of product people in our teams. Makes a lot of sense. Now, there's also this part of being a product person in that you can't afford to just sit within your team, right? Your people are mostly sitting in different teams with very different skill sets, very different types of functionalities. Can you talk to me a little bit about how important is it for a product manager to be able to work across functions? And how does a product manager empathize with all of these different functions that they have to end up working with? Yeah, so if you think about product management as the intersection in between technology, business, and design, the reality is that you probably can't be the best at everything. You might come from one of those circles, meaning you might be especially good in those, but there might be other circles you don't have enough experience yet and you just need to be good enough. So as a journalist, it's impossible to expect that you are going to be the best engineer and the best designer and the best salesperson in the room. But you definitely need to be curious and good enough to be able to ask the right questions, to earn the respect of your team, to have empathy for your team so you can bring all these pieces together. And I think that is the, the key piece for a lot of people from the outside who are thinking about breaking into product. They see these images of product managers are superheroes, right? And yes, obviously it's a demanding job. It requires a lot of hard work, experience, constant updates. But at the same time, best product managers have the best teams. And I think there is a lot of magic in knowing how to empower your team so they can also make their own decisions and you can be more of a facilitator than really a, a dictator. That's an excellent way of looking at it. So I want to take a few steps back, Carlos, to something that we were discussing earlier about the slightly slower growth, not that rapid, let's let's just go break everything in the first six months kind of growth, but more of a, a steady, let's figure it out. And then we hit that hockey stick kind of a growth. And that's that's very reflective of a, of a lean startup kind of a, a methodology where you start out with the basics, see what works, figure out the minimum viable product, get to a product market fitment, and then scale it from there. Though a question when you're growing at such an organic scale is, how do you know that you have product market fitment? How do you, how do you know that, all right, you know what, this thing really works, and now it's time to, to step on the accelerators and start getting things into scale? Well, that is a great question because it's very easy to cheat the answer. Right? If you ask every founder, they would probably tell you, we found product market fit. We are ready for hyper growth. And that might be true, but that might not be true either. So in our case, the MVP, the minimum viable product was me in a conference room teaching five aspiring product managers how to get their first PM job. And I wasn't sure if this would be product, I mean, what is product market fit? Like maybe product market fit for me is that those students are actually successful and end up getting those jobs. But does that mean that the market size is big enough in order to do this at scale? I didn't know yet. And by the way, that's okay. I think it's part of the process. I, I started this company not with the expectation to raise money and change the world. That would be nice, of course, but I started this company with the expectation to really solve my problem for a lot of other people that hopefully had that same problem. As we evolved, we realized that there were opportunities to start doing this, but at the same time, this wasn't going to be your classic 
online platform where we can train millions of people at the same time because I wanted the, the service that we delivered, the training, to be really high quality. For that, we wanted this to have a live component. So every single course that we teach includes an instructor from Silicon Valley who's live interacting with the students. We cap each cohort of students at 20. So there are certain limits that we decided to put in order to preserve quality over quantity. And that means that it took us longer to figure out a model to scale with those constraints. Now we're at a point where we are offering multiple cohorts in parallel that have that same live component at a very small student-to-teacher ratio, and that's great. And we are now at a point where we are thinking about, okay, what is that next frontier for us? But I'm always very aware that the goal is not to grow to a point where we reduce quality. So when we chose our, our investor, we were in a position where we could also interview that other person and understand what are their expectations for this type of partnership. Are they trying to get like a quick dollar in return and sell to the next big fish? Or are they going to be a long-term partner who understands our perspective? And we were lucky enough to find that partner. So now I don't feel additional pressure to sacrifice quality. Anything, I'm getting the instruction of like, now that we have more resources, we actually can invest because we know that that we're doing something good and we don't want to lose that magic. That kind of makes sense because I remember this strategy letter by Joel Spolsky from back in the day called uh, the Amazon versus Ben and Jerry model of how there's this basically two different growth stories that you can choose to be a part of. The Amazon model where it's about hyper growth and then the Ben and Jerry model where it's more about figure it out, organically grow, preserve culture, preserve quality, right? And then take it from there. And I think as an organization, uh, product school has a bent closer towards the Ben and Jerry model. But that said, today you have built a massive community of product managers around product school, which is phenomenal. And that gives you a kind of unique vantage into what the history of product management has looked like over the past few years, but also what product management is evolving into today and where it's likely to take us into the next few years. So what are some of the things that have changed and what should we be looking out for as product managers of the future to equip ourselves for tomorrow? Yeah, I absolutely love the space because when we started, the questions we would get are, what is product management? (laughs) Why is this different than project management? And now all the questions are around the future. LinkedIn just released a report and confirmed that product management is the number one job in the world to get you a promotion fastest. It's 2.5x faster than an average job in the US. So there's a lot of validation in the industry. There are more companies than ever hiring product managers. And this is not just for high-tech companies in Silicon Valley. There is a, a common understanding that product management is here to stay. It's part of any industry because we are all using technology to do our jobs and to communicate with our customers. So obviously timing has been on our side because I have to recognize it's been incredible. We've never seen such a demand ever. Now, this is evolving. I remember back in the day, the role of the product manager was one and there would be maybe a single definition. (laughs) Now we're seeing how each company has their own definition. The product teams are made out of a lot of different people, not just product managers. We're seeing growth product managers, 
we are seeing data, we're seeing analysts, we're seeing te technical program managers. So we're seeing that there is an explosion in terms of the tools that product managers use. Now we don't have to piggyback off tools created for engineers, marketers, or designers. We have our own tools for road mapping, for prototyping, for analytics. It's incredible. So it's, we have a seat at the table. What I mean by this is that this role is not just for entry to mid-level professionals. Now there is a chief product officer in one out of three companies in the Fortune 100. That is incredible. The fact that there's a chief product officer with direct report to the CEO and that that person is not just part of marketing or technology, it's really empowering all of us to realize that there is an entire career path and that this is just the beginning. That's kind of true. I, you know, it's, it's been happening so passively that I didn't quite realize it, but the growth in this role of a chief product officer is definitely a harbinger of some very interesting movements happening in the product space. We're almost on time and there's this very interesting question that I've been dying to ask of uh, every product manager that I know of, which is, you know, every product manager has their bunch of little frameworks and metrics and KPIs and dashboards in the back of their hand that, you know, they live and swear by. Do you have any kind of uh, specific frameworks or methodologies that kind of pop top of mind that have really impressed you that you think are, you know, help you make better decisions as a product manager? Yes, with a caveat. Because I think too many frameworks can also kill the company or the team. For example, the Agile methodology has been around since 2001. And people still refer to that as the holy grail. And then there are a lot of approaches to Agile, right? Like you can do Scrum, Lean, you can do Kanban. There are so many ways. And I think it's good to know the different options and not just in Agile, but in others. At the same time, as a product person, it's important to have flexibility to adjust what works to your own needs and know that that methodology or that template that you are using today might change as your company evolves. I host a podcast as well. And I love sitting down with product leaders. I always ask them about how they organize their own product teams. And I almost never get the same answer. And they always say, by the way, now we are doing this. A few years ago, we were doing that. I think we're at a point we're going to reconsider. So it's literally treating those templates, those org charts as your own product. So what we try to do at product school is to curate this type of information because there's too much information at this point. And it can be confusing, right? If you go to Google and say, what is product management? Or what are some methodologies for product managers? You don't really know what's good and who else is using it. So we're playing this role where we curate this information based on the access that we have to incredible product leaders from across the world. We make sure that this is digestible and free so that people can make the best out of it. But we don't try to impose a specific template or methodology as the only way of doing things. That was amazing, uh, Carlos. That brings us to the end of our session today, but I'm going to have uh, one more bonus question that I specifically wanted to ask you. Now, you've been in the space for 10 years, managing products, building products, teaching others how to do this and driving a community around yourself. But if you could go back 12 years, right? Two years before all of this started, and you could give any piece of advice to yourself from 12 years ago, what would that be? That's a great question. You know, I've been building uh, my entire life. I think I started building even before I knew what product management was. 
And this is not my first company either. I tried with two others that weren't really that successful. So if I had to look back, I would probably say, just go for it. Because the opportunity cost 12 years ago, for me, was much lower than now. Now I'm married, I have two kids, I have a company that is working. So it's more, much more at stake. Obviously, I want to keep that fresh mindset and always be experimenting. But I think there is a window for younger people when they are hungry and kind of naive and they can go for it, right? And, and I think, yes, you might not know everything. And it's more likely that your first experiment or second or even the third one won't be super successful. But the sooner you start, the sooner you start compounding learnings. Perfect. And that was so brilliantly put, uh, Carlos. And that brings us to the end of our session today. Thank you for being an amazing participant. And I had so much fun uh, doing this podcast interview with you, Carlos. And that brings us to the end of the session. Thank you so much for joining us. 